The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Jill Canali. She is a professor in the Department of Nutrition and Exercise Physiology at the University of Missouri in Columbia. She has been there since 2009. She received her PhD in exercise physiology from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and she's had postdoctoral experiences at the Mayo Clinic and the University of Virginia. She then joined the faculty of the Department of Exercise Science at Syracuse University. And what a perfect time of year to talk to you, Dr. Canali. So welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm good. All right. So you have been doing research, just to give our listeners a little heads up, on pre-diabetic and type 2 diabetes, and you're presently involved in a research study looking at different diet and exercise variations during the day. Tell me a little bit about your present-day research and how you got interested in exercise physiology to begin with. Well, our current project that we have going on is looking at the time of day that people are exercising, and in particular, seeing if there's an advantage to exercise at, let's say, early in the morning versus in the evening, because we think it might help people with elevated glucose levels control their glucose levels better, in particular if they're a type 2 diabetic. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to pursue this line of research to say, does exercise timing make a difference? And in particular, in the type 2 diabetic population. So that's the project that we have ongoing now. I got interested in exercise physiology right back when I was an undergrad. It just seemed to be that when I first took that first course, I just found it really interesting Yeah, and just kept moving forward from there. And, you know, I remember going into my master's and I would read so much about a variety of different topics and it all interested me. Yeah. So I've always been in that field. I had the same experience with nutrition, so I totally understand that. What has the literature to date shown about exercise timing? You know, I think that we really struggle as a population to get any amount of exercise. But now we're thinking about the timing and does it or does it not make a difference? What does the literature show to date? That's a really good point that you made, that it it is difficult for us to get exercise in. But when we're an individual who maybe has been exercising and it's been recommended for us because we have whatever particular health complication, it may be that maybe timing our exercise might help us more Mm -hmm. than maybe an individual who is healthy and doesn't have this complication. So what I'm kind of getting at is, in particular, an individual who has type 2 diabetes and has elevated blood glucose levels may get a greater benefit if they move their exercise around. Because I often hear from them when they come in, you know, I exercise three, four times a week, but it's not helping my glucose levels. And somewhat timing it to either circadian rhythms or around meals might be advantageous to them. What we're starting to notice in the literature is as we look back over the last, I don't know, 
maybe five to 10 years, and we're starting to get more and more literature on exercise and timing it around a meal, they've started to notice in individuals with type 2 diabetes that if the exercise was done after breakfast, most often it's shown they get better control of their glucose levels than if they exercised before their breakfast when they were still fasted. Oh, that's very um, interesting. Now, a lot of the literature hasn't really extended this to comparing what happens after lunch or after dinner, and that's kind of where our project is going right now, looking at after all the different meals. But the literature out there now is showing that you can lower your glucose levels more effectively with the exercise after breakfast. And these studies have used time frames anywhere from about 30 minutes to two hours post-meal. Interesting. And I noticed you had written a paper, The Non-Pharmacological Treatment of Insulin Resistance. So before somebody is diagnosed with outright type 2 diabetes, there is some insulin resistance, I think. Um, correct. correct me if I'm wrong. So I'm looking at timing of exercise as a way to prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes once we know somebody has insulin resistance. Would your recommendation right now be to look at the timing of exercise and say, get some exercise perhaps after mealtime? Is it just breakfast that matters? Or is it the ability to help reduce blood sugar by exercising after any meal? Well, that's a good question. The bulk of the research has looked after the breakfast meal. Okay. Very few studies have looked after the lunch or the dinner meal. A really nice study was done, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, where they compared people with type 2 diabetes that walked either before dinner or after dinner. And after dinner showed a little bit more benefit to it. But we really don't have a substantial amount of research out there that is looking after lunch or after dinner. But just based what I'm seeing on the breakfast meal, if somebody can get up and exercise after each meal, I would recommend it. Mm -hmm. you know, if you are insulin resistant, whether you're type 2 diabetic yet or not, or pre-diabetic, it just helps your body handle the glucose better mm -hmm. that you're consuming. And so that after-meal stroll, and in particular that after-dinner walk, whether you go with a spouse or your dog or whatever, is beneficial. All right. Now, let me ask you about walking. You mentioned stroll, and so that brought to mind the recommendation about how long, you know, what is the minimum? That's what everybody wants to know. What's the least amount of exercise I can do to have the physical benefit? So there's that question, and also the strenuous nature of the stroll. Is it okay to not get your heart rate up necessarily, but you're still moving your body and therefore going to get the benefit? You know, that's a good question because when we do a research study, we can really control how long the person exercises and what intensity that they go at. And most of those studies that are showing a benefit are going to use longer time frames. So they're going to use 15 to 30 minutes most often. So I can't give you an answer to say, you know, five, five minutes will do the job. More is better from that perspective. Intensity-wise, I would say it needs to be at least moderate intensity and above, mm -hmm. okay? which could be a brisk walk. Just pick up the pace a little bit. And what I have found in the past from training a number of people in a variety of studies is when we first get them into the study, they don't want to move that fast, but I'm always surprised at the end of a week of really encouraging them to pick up the pace. They can do it mm -hmm. and they can do it no problem. 
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I find that if I'm walking with a headset and I'm listening to music, I am much better able to pick up the pace than if I'm just walking by myself and noticing the trees, etc. So I think there probably are tricks to get the pace up, but it's good to know that at least at a moderate level has more of a benefit than if we're just strolling. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, what we're trying to do is somewhat, I don't know if the right word is to burn off that sugar that you consumed, but you need to have enough of a pace to metabolize that and it's going to have to increase blood flow and all of that. And so if it is too slow, you're probably not going to get much advantage out of it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to put the time in anyways, I always say just go a little bit faster and and ask yourself the question, kind of how do I perceive this exercise? And if you can say, this is somewhat hard, then you're probably close to a moderate pace. Right. All right. So you're an exercise physiologist. I'm a dietitian. We go to different meetings. We probably have some overlap of content. I would say that one of the number one issues at my last dietetic association meeting had to do with macronutrient distribution. Mm. And I have lived through multiple iterations of the Atkins diet or the ketogenic diet. Right. So we're seeing a return to the popularity of reducing carbohydrates. As an exercise physiologist, how do you perceive the macronutrient distribution? Is it important? You mean macronutrient per each meal or spread across the day? Because there's kind of two ways to do it. But I think that we need to keep a balance there. I remember years ago, one of my first nutrition professors said it's all about moderation. Yeah. We shouldn't go a swing where it's all protein, little carbohydrate, or all carbohydrate, no protein. It's all in moderation. And I guess I've always kept that in my head that that's the best. I think for most people, it's the easiest to do because you need to be doing something you can continue to do beyond two or three months. And I think that's what happens with a lot of these diets or recommendations that come out. People go, oh, this is great. I can cut out all my carbohydrates, but they can't do it very long. Right. And I think maybe the bigger issue is is paying attention to, am I eating more whole foods, more healthy food, cutting out some of the refined foods, and this will probably cut out some of that sugar and fat. Exactly. Yeah. I think that these diets are appealing because on the scale, there appears to be weight loss. Mm -hmm. And so that looks great. But over time, it is difficult to adhere to. I think that one of the recommendations that I've seen a lot in the nutrition area, or at least where there's been a lot of discussion, is where you're exercising before eating in order to enhance fat burning. So where you're burning some of the ketone bodies. Right. And that is going to happen. This is where it kind of comes down to what is your goal for the exercise? If you want to burn more fat, you will burn a little more fat if you exercise when you're fasted before, let's say you've had breakfast. Mm -hmm. But if we have an individual who needs to control their blood sugar levels, they may be better off to exercise after the breakfast. Mm -hmm. And most often for what we're going to the exercise we're going to do, we're going to burn some fat. I know you burn more when you're fasted, but I'm not sure how much more it is. Mm -hmm. And also you've looked at where body fat is distributed. And of course, you know, we've all 
heard that if you carry that visceral fat or that abdominal fat, mm -hmm. that is much more dangerous than if you carry fat in your hips. So in looking at exercise timing, does this appear also to impact how much of that visceral fat we burn? Boy, I've never seen anything that has looked at that yet. My guess is, is that exercise generally works to burn the fat in the abdominal area, and I'm not sure the timing factor is going to come into play there. It's just harder to burn fat, let's say, on your hips and thighs. I see. And circadian rhythm might play a little bit of a role, but I haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. There are so many questions about exercise and diet still after all of these decades. And I'm sure when you go to a party, people are typically coming up to you and asking you all kinds of questions. I get a million questions about diet and exercise. Yeah. You know, what what the best way and or I've just heard of this new diet or and half the time I haven't even heard of the new diet. Right. Well, this is great. Okay, let me take one minute and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Jill Canali. She is a professor and associate chair of nutrition and exercise physiology at the University of Missouri in Columbia, and her research is around diabetes, prediabetes, weight loss, and timing of exercise. All right, so you're at a party, people come up to you, they're asking you about specific diets. If you could give individuals one or two key messages about weight control and eating, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I think it comes back to what I always learned is eat in moderation. Mm -hmm. Try to keep your balance between carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Try not to really overeat, and I mean stuffing yourself at every meal where you feel incredibly full. And then I don't think you can, I mean, you can do it all with just diet, but I'm one of those people that says, but you also need to be exercising at the same time. Well, and it just feels so good when we do exercise. Yeah. And I think about people, including myself, when at times I've had injuries and exercise isn't easy. In fact, it becomes painful and when someone is in that position and they have to try to control their blood sugar and they're not able to exercise, what do you tell them? I know it's very hard when people have an injury or it's painful, but I always suggest try to find something you can do. Yeah. And there's a lot of different modes of physical activity out there. And if for you right now, it's just walking the little bit, then walk the little bit, but try to do something. Yeah. Tell me about some of the research that you've done specifically on the effects of a high fructose diet. I don't know when the soft drink size bottles got from a 6 or 10 ounce to a 24 ounce, but I think that if we look at the American diet over the past, say, 10 or 20 years, we have had a higher amount of fructose in the diet. How does that affect our physical health with regard to diabetes risk, and what do you recommend with regard to exercise? That's a good question when portion size increased so much and when did more fructose really start coming into the diet? I know it definitely is used because of color and it's kind of used as a preservative and now we're so used to it that if you actually have something like ketchup and it doesn't have fructose and it doesn't taste right to us. One of the things that it does is if we look at it from the standpoint of your blood sugar levels when you consume like a 
juice, let's say, that has high fructose in it, your blood sugar levels do go up, but they don't go up as high as if you had glucose, another sugar, but they stay elevated longer. Mm. And this fructose sugar that is staying elevated also goes back to the liver and starts creating, I'm trying not to get too technical here and I'm coming up with the wrong words, but also has an impact on the liver and, and then in the long term, it can have more of a negative effect on the liver and producing lipids and things like that into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. So our diet now has a lot of fructose in it. It's in almost everything that you eat. And I think we just need to pay attention if we can to try to minimize it. And, you know, some of these juices that are out there are very, very high in fructose. And I think you need to be aware that it's there. And if you're somebody who has problems controlling your blood glucose and you also have high blood lipids, you might want to stay away from them. Mm -hmm. We do know, like any other sugar, that if we exercise, we will tend to burn fructose. Mm -hmm. As we burn. And in fact, it's, it's in a lot of your Gatorades and that they've now started putting fructose into it. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because I think with a lot of the sports drinks, they have this health halo. And I'm always trying to help parents understand that this is just another sugary beverage. It just doesn't have the carbonation and it's not called a soda. But parents or anyone who's in charge of buying beverages for kids especially I think needs to pay attention to how many grams of added sugar they are getting with those products. And I don't know about you, but I love the American Heart Association recommendations that say for men, no more than nine teaspoons of added sugar a day. And for women, it's no more than six. And then when you start doing the math with food labels, you can see how quickly that adds up. Oh, very fast. The American diet, most of our products have added sugar in it, whether it's bread or ketchup or whatever it is. Right. And everything. Exactly. So let's get back to exercise for a moment, if we can, because you've also looked at hormonal responses. So you look at cortisol and growth hormone responses to exercising at different times of the day. What would you like our listeners to know about that research? Really, when we did that research, we were really just trying to understand if you exercised at different times a day, did it shift some of these hormones that have a pretty strong circadian rhythm to it. The interesting thing with the growth hormone is we could see some changes at times a day, but they weren't as profound as we thought they would be, Mm -hmm. which really tells us that circadian rhythm is pretty strong. And that's the same with cortisol. If the exercise came early in the morning when cortisol levels tend to be high, we'll get a cortisol response, but it's, it's not really big. And sometimes we might actually get a bigger cortisol response that's later in the day when circulating cortisol is lower. But there wasn't anything in our research to show that by exercising earlier or later was ever shifting that natural cortisol Mm -hmm. response. So Um, if a person wants to lose abdominal weight, which is the most dangerous, that visceral fat, mm -hmm. Exercise timing, it sounds to me like you're saying it's best to exercise just right after breakfast, within, say, 30 minutes or 30 minutes to two hours after. Well, I'm not sure if that will make us lose more of that fat around the waist by exercising after the breakfast. We know that's true for affecting blood glucose levels. Okay. But typically, when most people exercise, 
we tend to mobilize fat from the abdominal region probably first mm-hmm. before we'll mobilize it from other areas of the body. Okay. So pretty much any exercise, and of course, as it gets to be higher intensity, then we're going to try to use more of that fat that we have stored. Okay. Now, what happens as we get older? It seems that not only do we shrink a little bit, so we have more body mass around our middles, but what happens in terms of our efficiency with exercise and eating? Should older people, and I'm looking at women, of course, because Uh I am a woman and I'm interested in maintaining bone density because that's so important for women. So of course, the weight-bearing activity. You've also looked at resistance training as being important. Can you tie those things together, especially, you know, keeping in mind an aging population? So I guess I'm a little confused where your question is going. In an aging population, I think it becomes a little bit of a catch-22 because a lot of people, as they get older, stop doing more physical activity. Mm -hmm. And so then this becomes difficult because you need to keep your caloric intake up. But if you're not doing as much physical activity, you could be prone to weight gain as you get older. But at the same time, I think there's a need and there's definitely some evidence out there, especially as we get older in the 70s and 80s, that we might even have higher needs for like protein. Right. And I think for a lot of people, that's what they stop. They're not cooking as big meals and things like that. And they let a lot of that cut out. Right. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to try to clarify. I'm sorry if that question wasn't clear. But we've got so many things going on. So we've got maybe a propensity towards looser control of our blood sugar. We're not mm-hmm. you know, as yep. efficient as we were when we were younger. And then that's confounded by the fact that we've got to pay really close attention to bone density. Right. So not only is the recommendation to get aerobic kind of activity, but also there's resistance training or resistance work. And, you know, not everybody has the luxury of going to the gym and lifting weights. And so we have to find a way to build that kind of resistance training into our day. But I'm curious to know about the resistance versus the aerobic activity on blood sugar control. You know, it seems right now a lot of evidence shows that both seem to do the trick. It's it's getting the muscle contractions in that are important. And so whether you do this through aerobic exercise by walking or by doing some sort of weightlifting resistance exercise, both of them do it. And even within the resistance exercise, as people get older, I know a lot of people often think that resistance is lifting heavy weights and that type of thing, but there's also resistance exercise that's more muscular endurance. So you don't go as high intensity, but you do like more repetitions. Mm-hmm. And so instead of going, I don't know, six to eight repetitions with a really high weight, you take a low weight and you might do 20 repetitions or 25 repetitions and then repeat that. And that has a lot of value for people as they get older because it gives them muscular endurance. And a lot of times it's endurance that we need right. as, as much as we need strength. And there's a lot of ways people can do this besides going to the gym. In fact, you know, I always think you know, for older individuals that if they, they, there's a lot of things around the house. I have a lot of women say, oh, I can't lift that weight. And I look at them and I go, you carry groceries, you carry a jug of milk. Right. You can lift that weight. Mm-hmm. And you think nothing of it when it's a jug of milk or whatever. And so there's a lot of items around the home that you could do 
to try to do the bicep curl or, you know, some of these exercises that you've seen to strengthen your upper body or you can do practice sit to stand, getting out of a chair and just using your own body weight. Exactly. And all of those are advantageous and and it doesn't cost you. Exactly. Well, and I love the ability to give people practical tips that they can do every day, you know, to make this research applicable. Are there any really good organizations or websites that you like to lead people to, to just get maybe a, a routine that, you know, a series of exercises that they can put into practice? Oh, boy. That's a really good question because I don't tend to go to one over another. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of just kind of search between them periodically. So I don't have any one off the top of my head. And especially, I can't think for different age groups that I would recommend one over the other. I mean, I know one in particular that does a lot of things, but I would recommend that more to a younger, more fit population than I would to an older population. Mm -hmm. But I know, you know, I hate to say this, you, you would just have to Google because it's just not something I look for all the time. Right. Well, I think that, you know, certainly going to the National Institutes of Health, American Heart Association, some of our, right. you know, our sound organizations for good information, there's just so much confusing information out there with regard yeah. to Googling things, which is where I came up with some of my questions about the fat burning. What is the best way to burn fat? We go to mm-hmm. one site that says, oh, no, you know, wait to eat breakfast until you've had your exercise. And another one that says, no, you know, have your breakfast and then exercise afterwards. And the the end consumer is like, well, what should I do? Yeah. So the one group that you can go out to is the American College of Sports Medicine. Okay. And that's acsm.org. Okay. And they put out, I mean, they have a lot of things on their website, but they also put out position papers. They work very closely with the CDC and American Heart and these other organizations when they're putting recommendations out. Mm -hmm. And they're the primary body that does the exercise recommendations. Okay. That's good to know. We just have a couple of minutes. Of course, I have a long list of questions and issues that I still want to go over, I am very curious about one other area of your research, and that has to do with obesity and adipose tissue inflammation. What I hear a lot at my nutrition conferences is that inflammation is really the source of many of our chronic diseases. Is there anything you want to say about the relationship between obesity and inflammation? Well, we do know that as we start to put on more adipose tissue, it starts producing more inflammatory markers. And even kind of as the adipose tissue starts to get bigger and the cells become bigger, they put out more and more inflammatory markers, it's, and it's considered less healthy. It's, it's really not doing its job of short-term storage of excess calories. So we're, we're beginning to realize that we used to think of the adipose tissue or fat as just being this inert place that we put excess calories. But now we're recognizing that it's very important to metabolism and you you almost want to have healthy fat if you think of it that way. Right. And and yeah, when there gets to be too much of it, it really increases the amount of circulating inflammatory markers in our body. And there's still a lot of research going on trying to figure out how does this link and potentially cause or exacerbate various uh, health conditions. Mm. 
Well, Dr. Canale, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for your research and for sharing some of the research highlights with our audience today. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jill Canale. She is a professor and associate chair of nutrition and exercise physiology at the University of Missouri in Columbia. And I will provide a link to her faculty website so we can follow her research and her continuing discoveries that will help all of us feel and look better. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.